Welcome to On the Mark, a podcast series that explores the effect of various industries of the pandemic caused by COVID and how companies have adapted to survive and thrive during these difficult times and how these changes may affect these businesses and industries beyond the COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Howard, Howard Mark Rubin, and this podcast series came about as a result of my realization that as a practicing attorney and partner in the law firm of Getz Fitzpatrick, representing businesses in a wide scope of areas for over 30 years, that this pandemic, more than anything else in my legal career, has permanently changed the way business is being done and may be done in the future. It has such a diverse, diverse effect on industries that the people who work in those industries have felt that they had to change the way that they live their lives and do business. And I felt that it was important to address what is the reality, what is the fiction, and what the future holds. This uh, series is sponsored by the Strategic Forum, which was founded in 1999 in New York City and expanded in 2004 to South Florida. It's an organization consisting of CPOs, or CPOs, I'm sorry, CEOs, entrepreneurs and business leaders who believe in forming deep personal and professional relationships based on mutual respect, trust, and continuing learning and intellectual enrichment. In every podcast, we have a member of the Strategic Forum and a distinguished guest in a related field. Today we have Keith uh, Fleischman, who's a uh, who's the founding partner, I guess you'd say, of Fleischman, Bonner, and Rocco, and Judge John Leventhal, uh, who is one of the most prominent jurists in New York, was a trial jurist as well as a um, uh, appellate ju- ju- uh, judge for many years, uh, founded the first domestic violence um, part. Uh, so we're very excited, and we, we're going. The topic today is going to be the court system and how the court system has been uh, affected by this COVID uh, ac- epidemic, and uh, how some of those changes may, for the court system, be a good thing in how we practice law, and some some of them uh, may not be a good thing, and, and how long these these changes are going to last. So first, I'm going to ask both of you um, to tell us about. Your background's a little bit in, in what you do. Uh, Keith, why don't you start? Tell us about uh, uh, your work at the Fleischmann, Bonner, and Rocco and a little about your background. Sure. Good, good morning, Howard. Uh, good morning, Judge. Uh, great to be here. Um, I, I've been practicing law for quite some time. I started uh, in the Bronx District Attorney's Office uh, in the Investigations and Major Offense Bureau. Uh, I then went to the Justice Department in Washington. Um, I was um, in the criminal fraud section, um, but detailed, among other things, uh, to the Dallas Bank Fraud Task Force, where I tried um, some of the biggest savings and loan cases in the country uh, in federal district court there, as well as cases both in California and um, overseas. Um, I then left there and I went to the United States Attorney's Office, um, District of Connecticut, where I was in charge of financial fraud. Um, but also um, delved heavily into uh, some of their other uh, areas, including organized crime and the like. Um, I then went to uh, Milberg Weiss, which was a uh, w- one of the and probably the most prom- prominent securities plaintiffs firms in the country at the time. Spent 11 years there, uh, leaving as a senior managing partner. Uh, I went to two other firms, including Grant and Eisenhofer, where I was their chief trial lawyer, um, and then 11 years ago, started my own firm. Um, I recently, two years ago, merged with two very good friends and colleagues who we had 
uh, successfully litigated and tried many cases together, uh, Jim Bonner and Pat Rocco. And so Fleischman, Bonner and Rocco, in a nutshell, um, we are litigation boutique. Uh, you can see us online. Um, and we are trial lawyers. Um, some of us have uh, prosecutorial uh, and defense um, attorney backgrounds. Um, we're all litigators. Um, we don't do any transactional work, but we, we litigate and try cases for individuals, public corporations, um, hedge funds. Um, we do work before the SEC all over the country, um, but we are basically a, a litigation boutique um, and, and we handle all matters um, except some specialties, including divorce and the like. Well, well thank you, Keith. That's impressive. And I'm sure uh, you have uh, a lot of opinions about uh, the court system and how it's uh, operating. Uh, Judge Leventhal, uh, we've been friends uh, for uh, more years than I can uh, remember, going back to law school days. Uh, I know that uh, that up until recently, at least, uh, you've been a, uh, a justice on the appellate division, the second department, and uh, were involved in some litigation when, in my opinion, they uh, unfairly terminated uh, senior judges. Uh, and uh, But I think that at this point you've decided to move on into an exciting uh, new chapter of your career uh, working in a, at a law firm. So why don't you tell us a little about your background and, and, and what you're doing now, Judge Leventhal. Okay. So I, I uh, went to law school with my good friend Howard Rubin, and we were in the same fraternity together. And and then I clerked for a judge, and then I went into uh, practice, and then I co-founded a small firm in, in Brooklyn, uh, and then 1994 I was elected to the Supreme Court, which I started in January of 95. For the first year and a half, I thought I was on the federal bench. They let me try civil and criminal cases, products liability, uh, medical malpractice, personal injury, and I did actually two matrimonials. But after a year and a half, the chief judge of the state at the time, Judith Kay, and my supervising judge, Michael Pesci, asked me to preside over the nation's first felony domestic violence court because there was a celebrated case in New York, um, similar to the O.J. Simpson case, the, the death of Galena Komar and the governor and the mayor got involved. So we started this felony domestic violence court, which became a model throughout the country. I did that for about 11 and a half years. And during that time in 2001, they also gave me um, the assignment of handling guardianship cases. I guess to cheer me up, there I was doing uh, elder abuse, financial exploitation, and, and also uh, Preserving the assets. Uh, let me, John. Let me, let me, uh, Judge Levin. Let me correct you. You weren't doing financial abuse, and uh, you were no. you were litigating. Oh, you was, were not litigating it. You were making adjudication. You were protecting the rights. Right. You weren't do, actually doing it. I, I, I wanted to correct that. I don't want to get people no, right. the wrong I was idea. Sorry, <laughs> I was protecting the rights of seniors who were subject to financial exploitation right. and other abuse. Right. And that's what's ironic when when they uh, let the senior judges go. You know, and we've done so much to protect the rights of seniors, both criminally and civilly. And and then where were they? But you know, it's an, an irony. I don't know if you saw this, Howard. The uh, the legislator, the legislature, has uh, the state senate put forward a bill, which which takes away the discretion from the administrative board that if judges deserve to be certificated, they must be. It's not discretionary. We'll see if that passes the uh, assembly and, and the. 
Senate, and I think the governor would be hard pressed to veto that because then he would be engaging in what the administrative judge, uh, the administrative board is doing, which I think is ageism. In any event, right. So, well, actually, I think there was a decision in the lower court uh, in your favor. In, in, favor in our of favor, group. and yeah. they're appealing it. Right. And it's going before uh, the third department uh, with two judges right. who are being vouched in from the fourth department on February 9th. But I think you've decided to move on. Uh, I did. I did. So, so tell us what I'm, you're doing now. Okay. So now I am with uh, a small boutique uh, uh, of about 10 to 12 lawyers at Idala, Vertuna, and Kamins. They basically do all types of litigation, civil and, and criminal. Uh, maybe we, you know, I think we also do matrimonial. I'm only here for about three weeks or, or a month. But I, I'm really enjoying the work. It's very challenging. It's interesting. I'm doing appellate work because I sat on the appellate division for 13 years, and uh, I'm enjoying it immensely. Well, so one door closes, another one opens. That's that's right. Let's talk about um, the uh, effect of this uh, pandemic on uh, the operations of the court system. Uh, I know that um, a lot of industries were affected different ways. Uh, one. One good thing I think that's coming of, of, of this pandemic is the acceleration of uh, doing more things virtually in the court system. Uh, of course, uh, uh, it's not the way we would want that to happen, but um, uh, Keith, what do you think of that, uh, that change? What do you see in the, in the court system working during this time? Are you directing that question? Yes, I said to, Keith, yes. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, that, yeah. that cut out my name. Um, so I'm seeing I'm seeing a lot of things. I mean, I think you're right. Um, it certainly has accelerated the use of technology by judges who a year ago would never even consider using technology. Um, it has it has certainly made uh, hearings, um, general hearings, status conferences a lot simpler, a lot more cost effective, um, probably a lot more efficient. I think, though, there's it, it has caused a fundamental change, and, and I'm sure the judge will speak to this, in, in really um, in, in trials um, and in depositions. Um, you know, I, I remember I remember two things. You know, it's so important when you're either giving an appellate argument or you're giving an argument before a jury um, to to connect, to be physically present, right? And forgetting about the fact that the judge is normally in control of his courtroom and he's in control of the jurors. Um, now, if, if they're gonna start going to virtual uh, trials and they've only done a couple, um, it's gonna be much harder because you already have complaints that jurors are reading other things, they're distracted, um, you know, there's no control over them and there's a huge prejudice aspect to that, which, which actually may have constitutional ramifications. But, um, you know, I remember two things quickly. One is, when I, I, I clerked for a summer at the U.S. Attorney's Office, Southern District of New York, um, and at that time, uh, the trial of New York Nikki Barnes had just started, and they assigned me down there to, to watch it, give me something to do at first days there. And the, the courtroom was packed, and, and you remember, yeah, I think American Gangster is, is the name of the movie that uh, Denzel Washington played, uh, New York Nikki Barnes. And, and, you know, they came in, the government came in with, you know, a couple of million dollars of cash, 25 minks, mink coats, um, and, you know, I don't know how many tens of pounds of, of heroin and cocaine. And his lawyer was a guy named James LaRosa, 
who I'm not sure if he's still alive, but he was a very, very prominent mob and criminal defense lawyer, fabulous lawyer. And, and he gets up, packed courtroom, he gets up to the jury and he starts giving his opening. And, and that was actually really when I decided I wanted to be a trial lawyer and, and a prosecutor. Um, but, but there's nothing that can substitute uh, for that. Um, I had a case where I tried what was the biggest savings and loan case in the country, a guaranteed federal savings and loan, a four-month savings and loan uh, trial in Dallas in the early 90s. And, and representing Paul Chang was um, a guy by the name of F. Lee Bailey. Um, and, and Simon Heath was represented by two of the best trial lawyers at Williams and Connolly. And I remember Bailey, and it was also a packed courtroom situation because the savings and loan crisis had really crippled uh, Texas and, and the Southwest. And, and I remember Bailey getting up there, you know, and he, and he looks at the jury and, you know, and he says, you know, he says there's there's snow on the roof, but there's fire in the belly. You know, you're not going to be able to, in, you know, and it was it was even though, you know, even though his guy went to jail for 30 years after fleeing to China. I mean, you know, the truth of the matter is there's nothing that substitutes in a trial situation or in an appellate situation, which I'm sure the judge will speak to for being present. That said, uh, concluding my these remarks i think that there definitely is a place going forward and i think that you know unfortunately th this crisis or this pandemic has had to facilitate um th this reality but there is certainly a place going forward uh for um virtual the virtual practice of law in certain settings um we've had in our firm uh jim bonner uh, argued before the third circuit um by uh just actually it wasn't even a zoom um, and it was it was fabulous. Um, but but and and we have other appellate arguments and we have arguments that that go before the court. Um, obviously, you lose a lot because a judge can't see you. Um, there's not that 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 in-person interaction. But I think there is a place for it. Depositions are again um, are going to be much harder because in a, even though and, and, and we're going to be involved in some video depositions next week in a case. Um, you know, there's nothing like being able to question a witness and and gain control over that witness, um, you know, in person and put pressure on that witness if that's what the situation calls for. Same thing in a courtroom. There's no substitute for for you helping to control what goes on in that courtroom in terms of decision making. But I, but again, I, I think that's uh, that, that's a great insight, Keith. But let's uh, let me move on to Judge Leventhal for a minute. Judge, could you give us you've been handling appeals uh, since COVID started up until recently. Uh, how do you find uh, the uh, virtual nature of it or, or the appellate practice uh, during this COVID time? Well, we were, we were ready, hitting the ground running, first with uh, Skype and then with Teams. We hit the ground running. We didn't miss a beat. We, right away, we, we uh, were doing appeals hybrid. Uh, if a judge felt um, that he was vulnerable uh, to COVID, he could do it remotely, and some judges were in the courthouse. Same with the attorneys. So we, we were doing it. I think now they're doing everything remotely when COVID went up again. But, you know, it is, as Keith has mentioned, it is, you know, not preferable to do it remotely. But we hit the ground running. We didn't miss a beat. We're working straight through. I think, I think really in the trial, uh, um, in the trial realm, it's going to be much more difficult. First of all, a defendant 
has the right to confrontation on, under the Sixth Amendment uh, under Crawford v. Washington to confront uh, witnesses against them. Look at what Donziger uh, ha has done. He, you know, they wanted to him to go ahead with his contempt trial, uh, Judge Preska in the federal court. And he basically said, look, I want to be there. I don't want to do it remotely. And even though she didn't want to give him an adjournment, she had to. So defendants ha have that right to, to be there. The grand juries was a big spreader of, of COVID. Arraignments could be done uh, remotely. Conferences, as Keith said, I think in the future it could be done remotely. It'll be it'll cut down attorneys' traveling time. And it'll make the practice of law more efficient. But as Keith said, jury trials much more difficult. Um, EBTs much more difficult. And don't forget, we have the executive order of the governor, which has basically, uh, you know, stopped speedy trial. Was been. Uh, uh, waived basically uh, for in criminal cases, certain statutes of limitations have been. Uh, people have been denied justice, and and to go back to the lawsuit, uh, if you permit me, Howard, when this when this COVID when this vaccines become uh, implemented and and given out fairly widely, there's going to be a crush of litigation and appeals. Instead of a two or three year wait in the appellate division having an appeal be heard, it's going to be a five-year wait. Instead of getting a trial after three or four years, it's going to, that wait is going to increase. It was very short-sighted to eliminate these judges. And, and I Judge, think, can I, and, and Howard, let me no. just chime in on one thing right. that, that, that Judge, Judge Leventhal said, which is really important. It, and also Governor Cuomo told um, the time for all filings and all pleadings. He, he had a number of executive orders which told it for, for some months. And, and that further created certainly um, inequities and, and probably some denial of justice, but also more importantly, um, it, it, it's going to create, as the judge mentioned, a huge backlog that, that's gonna just, you, you know, there's gonna be a storm, um, you know, when this thing is, is, is done. Yeah, and and I agree with that. I I, I uh, I'd like to get your opinions, uh, because I've I've found that uh, even before COVID, the backlog in some of these uh, courts to get it to get to a trial uh, was years, and it's really you know justice delayed, justice denied is is the common refrain. Uh, what do both of you think about uh, having mandatory uh, ADR, uh, alternative dispute resolution? For uh, for some cases, uh, Keith, what's your, what's your opinion about that? To cut down yeah, the backlog. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a great idea. I think there'd have to be certain parameters set. Uh, for example, maybe monetary value, the type of dispute. But I, look, so many, uh, you know, I mean, I, I've been in mediations and arbitrations ranging from you know hundreds of thousands of dollars to you know a, a billion dollars or more and you know with large corporations and they're very with good arbitrators and mediators they're very effective um and and they get resolution and i i think that you know certainly there should be serious thought given to a framework uh and law that that puts certain types of disputes into adr mandatory as an initial matter and Judge Leventhal, what do you think about mandatory ADR? Well, I, I think it's a good concept, especially since now I am a mediator and arbitrator <laughs> and practicing law. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm working with the National uh, um, Arbitration and Mediation. So, NAM. But I have to tell you, though, 
to be quite frank, I know the trial lawyers are against uh, these arbitration clauses in in uh, in various contracts. But if it's in the contract, it has to be arbitrated. Mediation obviously has to be consented to by the parties, and we have to be careful of making uh, parties uh, arbitrate because there's a right of contract and it's a constitutional right to a jury trial in, in civil cases. So we, we but I, I do think that the parties now are more apt to go to the arbitration route and the mediation route because there's gonna be such a delay in the court system that people who want to have their cases resolved, and this goes for the defense attorneys too, let's say for the insurance company. I mean, they're not billing now. They are, they bill by the hour when they do these cases. They I'm afraid a lot of law, law firms are going to go belly up during this COVID crisis, and I think that they will voluntarily go to arbitration or mediation. Do Do you think, uh, Judge Leventhal, that it's um, that the constitutional issue of mandatory uh, uh, arbitration can be? Uh, dealt with on a state level, or does, is that something that would take uh, federal legislation? I, I think you have to amend, yeah, I think you need federal legislation, first of all, because the state can't counteract the, uh, the federal constitution. I, I'm going to pull my constitution out in a second, but I, I really think that there is a constitutional right for a jury trial if the amount in controversy is over a certain amount. But but is that is that just in federal court or in state court? Because State uh -huh. court rules, state courts have the right to, you know, under separation to to really set their own laws. And they do sometimes they adopt federal laws. But I would think that for state crimes or, or, or certainly for state civil matters, that a state legislature could amend the Constitution and amend the laws, allowing for that kind of and and I might be wrong and a judge is going to pull out the constitution I may be wrong but but no, I would no. think they would have that right look you, you may be right but don't forget you'd have to look at the individual agreement if it's a business dispute uh calls for number one right uh, no, number two you know if you have a judge trial um you still you still want that in, in person right you want to examine the witnesses you want the judge to see the person in person, but yes, when this is over, you want to speed things up. Maybe more people will go to judge trials. I know in the personal injury sector, I don't think too many uh, of the plaintiff's attorneys are going to go for judge trials or uh, or mandatory arbitration. No, I, 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 think, that's yeah. I, I think that's absolutely not, correct. But not yeah. mandatory arbitration. But the it it seems to me that um, there there should be a a role uh, from the use of technology. If you're going to take away uh, someone's right to do a deposition in person, because you know I've also found that doing a deposition virtually is not the same thing, and uh, there's no constitutional right for that. There's no constitutional mm -hmm. right. Uh, for anything other than the the trial part of uh, a case, uh, everything before that is 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 not. Uh, I would think that we could put uh, laws into effect that would be a great incentive for parties to um, uh, to agree to ADR. I mean, there's got to be more incentives. I would think that there's uh, things that 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 we can do, or uh, maybe put in more uh, penalties in terms of uh, frivolous actions. 
because there's a lot of frivolous litigation. But unless we're going to increase the amount of judges tremendously, I just find that uh, I'm telling more and more clients, look, if you want to litigate this case, this could be five years. And uh, right. it's just ridiculous. And uh, we have to do something in this country to uh, to get a speedy resolution of litigation, which I don't think is going on there. John, what do you think of that? Uh, I mean, I, Judge I, Leventhal, I, I'm sorry. I, it's okay. I agree. <laughs> I agree 100% with what you say. Look, in the criminal sector, you can do conferences, and I think it'd be more effective. People don't have to wait in the courtroom. You can schedule times to be on uh, uh, teams to have those conferences. You can do arraignments uh, virtually. You could do sentences uh, if the defendant doesn't waive waive his right. The only thing you have a problem with is, is as I said, jury trials or, or trials where the, the uh, defendant has a right to confront witnesses. In civil cases, we can do a lot of things, as you said, Howard, and, and I think arbitration, As look, I have a vested interest now in arbitration and mediations, but I have to tell you that I think that's the way to go right now, especially since the court is backlogged. Now, you said five years, Howard. That really is five years for the trial. Then you have the appeal on top of right. that. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and you know, these cases will, will never get settled. So I, I do think that we should take it out of the court realm. Because once, once they get back in action, full steam, there's going to be a big backlog in the appeals, in the trials. Uh, it's going to be awful. And we've been, and we've been doing EBTs. At, a, at our firm remotely. We've been doing um, uh, many conferences re- remotely, but obviously there's not going to be any uh, trials remotely. And Keith, I'm going to ask you something a little controversial. Um, I find that the judges in the federal courts are, um, I'll say, of a uh, greater uh, quality uh, than I find in the state courts. Uh, because there's just a shortage of judges in the state courts who are successful lawyers who want to um, uh, go on the bench because it's, it's not paid that well. They're very overworked because they have so many cases, uh, and something has to be done. Uh, what do you think of that observation? Do you agree with it, disagree with it? Um, I, I mean, I think that, that you find good judges, um, and I have throughout the country, um, both on the state and federal level. I think as a general proposition, uh, federal district court judges um, are of a higher, you know, they, they have more resources, right? They have one clerk or two clerks. Um, they, are, they are judges who, um, you know, they, they've been appointed for maybe different reasons as opposed to the elected uh, judge who's, who's a politician. Um, but I have to tell you, I have Right now, I have cases in the commercial division in in New York, um, and I have fabulous judges who 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 wrap their arms that well, the, the, them both male and female wrap their arms around very complicated and complex uh, legal issues um, and other issues, and and I have judges in the federal court right now the same, but but in in the same token, you know I've run into some really really um, subpar judges. Um, on, on, on the federal bench and, and on the state bench. Um, so I think that, I, I think that you know, it's, it, it's very, always very hard to make 
um, you know, and I'm not trying to sort of play this down the middle to, to make, you know, gross observations. I think it really is case by case, but I will say that the state court is much more backlogged than the federal court. The federal court, you know, has the ability to uh, appoint magistrates and special masters and offload certain things to move things more quickly. Um, and, and I think that, you know, depending on the kind of case you have, you may prefer to be in the state court or the federal court. But I think it comes down, I, I think many, many state courts that, that we do business in um, are very, very overloaded. And, you know, it's hard to get conferences with the uh, law secretaries. It's harder to get conferences with the judge. Um, in the federal courts, I have not found that to be um, quite so bad. Judge Leventhal, let me ask you, um, uh, in the state court, level, they're going to have to hire a lot more judges. I think you're right. There's going to be a tremendous backlog. And the only thing they're going to do, they're, they're getting rid of the experienced judges like like you and your contemporaries and getting inexperienced judges. They're going to take their place. And I, I don't think that the quality of the, uh, the, the, uh, the judges are going to be the same because they're just not going to have experience. Also, um, I know that everyone goes through a political process to be appointed a judge, and maybe you could explain that a little bit and, on, on how that works. But do you think that the quality of the judiciary, I don't know if you want to go into this, you can punt this if you want to, is going to be, uh, is going to be diminished uh, if they have to hire a whole bunch of inexperienced judges to replace the ones that they're not allowing to continue on the bench? Well, they're really not going to be hiring any judges. Let me let me just tell you what's how this works. The the system is of New York State. You have appointed judges uh, in New York City, for example, which would be family court and criminal court. You have elected judges, civil court and supreme court throughout the state. Outside the city of New York, you have family court judges who who are elected, um, and you have court of claims judges who are appointed by by the governor. So. What happens here is that when judges become 70, it's almost like senior status in the federal court, as Keith knows and you know, Howard. They appoint another judge to take uh, that senior judge's place, and that senior judge continues working, so you have it like an extra judge. So when a judge turns 70 in New York and gets certificated, um, or you know, it's like considered senior status, we do have a full-time load, but then another judge gets a replace uh, replaces them in either an, as an elected judge. So it's not as if they're going to get new judges, Howard. They're just going to have less judges. And I have to tell you that just to, uh, to, to add on to what um, Keith has said, our commercial division rivals the chancery uh, courts uh, in, in, in Maryland. And, you know, they're very highly regarded. I sat on the appellate division second department, which is the busiest appellate court in the country. Each panel, and we have four panels a week, and a judge would sit on one panel uh, a week, would hear 20 appeals, reading 20 records and briefs every single week with one law clerk, one law clerk. And you look at the Supreme Court of the United States, or, and I went to once uh, go to New Hampshire to give a lecture, um, and and the uh, federal judge had like two or three cases on that day, you know. Wow. So the volume is so much greater. And if you look at the Second Circuit, they may have two or three appeals on in one day. We have twenty appeals on wow. 
every single day, four days a week. And on Wednesdays, we do attorney discipline. And, 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 to, be, and, and, to, and to replace the appellate judges, you know, what they did here, to say there was no necessity, that means they're going to promote a Supreme Court judge who's never done appellate work before. So they're going to, we have now seven vacancies in my court. And next year, there's going to be five more if they don't wow. certificate. They're going to replace 12 of the 22 judges in one whole year. And, yeah. and let me make let me make one observation that, that off the judges, which I think is really important. And Howard, you know this, and, and Judge Levenville, you know you know this. But p people who haven't practiced in the state court, there to, to your point of young judges versus old judges, there is nothing like going into the arraignment part in the Bronx or in Manhattan. And the judge, experienced judges, you know, old Burton Roberts way back then, experienced judges who know there are so many other factors that you have to deal with as a state court judge, both on the trial level and the appellate level, that you don't have to deal with as a federal court judge. You know, it's it's much fancier up there. It's much more formal up there. When you are in the state court as a judge, if you're going to keep control of your docket and control of your courtroom, you have to have all kinds of skills that can only be, you, you know, unless you, you've been in the mountains somewhere your whole life, that can only be learned through raw experience doing it. That's that's true. Uh, well, it, it, I think this is really, the time is really going, and uh, we're a little bit over, but uh, I do want to give you both a chance if there's something we didn't cover or something you want to express to our audience that you think is important for them to know in, in this, uh, in this uh, area, uh, uh, I'd love you to have the opportunity to uh, express that. Uh, Judge Leventhal, is there anything that you want to add? I, I, do, well, want to I, point I, I do want to point out one thing, a fantastic book. I'm going to give him a little plug. Uh, Judge Leventhal wrote a book, uh, My Partner, My Enemy, about his experiences in the domestic violence courts. Uh, Fantastic uh, book if you want to uh, to know what it's really like in the court system itself. Uh, you should try to pick it up and read it. Uh, loved it. Uh, Judge Leventhal, is there anything you want to add? Well, I just want to say the, the one good, the couple of good things came out about COVID. The air quality has improved because less people are driving. And technology has really improved in the court system. And that, that's, the, that's the big uh, takeaway here. And I'm just fortunate to be in a firm where I, I could contribute because uh, has interesting cases. And, and I'm very grateful that, you know, I, I was looking at a few firms. I'm just very grateful that I landed here at uh, Idola, Fortuna and Cameron's. And I want to thank you, uh, Mr. Howard Rubin, my good friend for, I'm not going to say how many years, Howard, for so many years for including me in this. And it was a pleasure to serve with you, Keith. Thank you. Thank you. And Keith, do you have anything uh, you'd like to add or? No, I, I think, you know, look, being a be, being being in the mountains as much as I am, you know, I, I definitely agree with the judge that, it, you know, th there have been some bright spots even in this terrible time. And, and one is the environment and the other is that's right. Technology was forced to move forward to, to deal with the situation. I would say just the one point, it's a minor point, but to the extent that listeners will, will view this podcast, um, you know, to the extent that your agreements in an arbitration clause or mandatory mediation, um, you know, you're going to help yourself in connection with getting resolution um, in any dispute you may have. But um, no, Howard, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, 
visit with you and the judge this morning. Well, thank you. I think it's been a uh, extremely informative podcast, and I want to thank you both for participating and looking to see you uh, in the future in a court that's uh, going to decide cases in a prompt and uh, equitable manner. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right. Take care.